Hi, welcome to the Macabre Emporium. Let me get my emotional support cat. Okay. <laughs> to be quiet and keep the kids quiet, since he was getting anxiety and he didn't want to kill children. Gertrude's daughter even got to join in on what they considered fun. Tell us about the giant turtle. Alan never showed up, nor was he ever heard from again beyond that point. Welcome back to Macabre Emporium. We are finally doing episode 17. Yes, and if this is your first time joining us, welcome. So I'm sure you're probably curious on what happened with us not being able to do episode 17 when we normally scheduled it. Well, my lovely computer decided to say, hey, you don't need half of Windows anymore all of a sudden when I was trying to roll back video card drivers for a card that I had bought to upgrade to and then decided to take a crap on me and yeah that's what happened so technical difficulties yeah it was a whole fucking goat rodeo that was trying to get that without having to buy fucking windows again yeah which so we're gonna do a tech tip corner for a second don't ignore making a recovery disc for your computer don't ever think you don't need it because i learned the hard way you do need it but anyhow so that, thanks for that TED talk. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for coming to my TED talk and seek the ice walls. The what? Seek the ice walls because. Seek the ice walls? Seek the ice walls because the earth is not flat. It's shaped like a realm. Oh my God. But anyway. Is that some nerd shit? That's some scat cast bullshit. Eh. <laughs> no thanks. But anyway. Yep. Anything fun? Did mm. we do anything fun? Um, other than you see me rage, nerd rage out on fixing my shit. Yeah, that was not fun. Quite above par for computer rage. Yeah, well, you know, after you spend four hundred dollars on a video card and it only lasts a week. Yeah, but anyhow, let's move on from that. So, what else did we do? Uh. Didn't do anything for Valentine's Day. Like always. Because we don't. Um, Even though people think you train trap me with that shit. Yep. Haters. We, yeah, we we don't ever do anything for Valentine's Day. Nope. Like go out to dinner and that's it. We don't buy yep. each other nothing. No cards. No candies. Just a dumbass cat in the background making noise. Knocking shit over. But yeah. Um, didn't do anything for that. We do have a couple concerts coming up mm -hmm. that I got us tickets to, which I'm super excited about. Right. I was hoping we could get the ghost ones, but it just didn't work out the way we wanted to. No. We'll see them eventually one of these days. They were ridiculously priced. Mm-hmm. But hey, those row EU seats that you got, those would have been really good, but it's whatever. Yeah, would have been. <laughs> but we're not going, nope. so fuck those seats. So and then we're going to go see Gojira and... Lorna Shore. And I can't remember who the third band is. Mastodon. Is it Mastodon? Yep. I always want to think it's somebody else, but anyhow. Nope. And then going on the completely other side of the music genre spectrum, we're going to go see uh, Reverend Payton's Big Damn Band again, like we saw in, up in Ferndale. Yeah. But different location this time. But enough of that stuff. What are you doing this week, Sarah? I am going to be talking about the Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre in... Las Cruces, New Mexico. Hmm. So is it just, is it a massacre because somebody just like rendered the 300 game? Yep. 
They got that turkey and went fucking ballistic. Yeah. I'm sure that's not what it really is. It's not. What are you talking about today? I'm going to be talking about the night that Disco died at Kamesky Park in, in Chicago, Illinois. Okay. <laughs> the night that Disco died. Yep. It's just as bonkers as my slice, uh, my ban on sliced bread during World War II. Oh, good lord. You might find this a little bit more crazy than the ban on sliced bread for two months. Yeah. It better be. No, yeah. It, it involves disco balls and no, no. platform shoes. No, that, that kind of part of disco. No? No, it's completely anti-disco, really. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, are you ready? Yep. Are you ready to get started? Am I ready? I'm ready. All right. Then let's get started. Like any typical Sunday for 34-year-old Stephanie Sanek, her day started at the bowling alley, preparing herself and the building for the busy day ahead of her. Stephanie's 12-year-old daughter, Melissa Repass, was there with her. The bowling alley was family-run. Stephanie was the manager and did the day-to-day errands and general running of the building. Her father, Ron, was the owner of the bowling alley. Melissa and her friend, Amy Hauser, were in charge of working at the daycare within the bowling alley. They were in the process of preparing the space. Ida, the bowling alley chef, was in her kitchen organizing, turning on the fryers, preparing everything she could that would be needed for that busy day. Stephanie's brother and Melissa's uncle, Steve Senek, had come to the bowling alley to pick up something he had previously left there. When he got there, he saw that the front doors of the alley were open and there were two men walking through the parking lot from the back of the building. He saw a small case pass between two men, one of which was much older than the other. Without a second thought, Steve grabbed his belongings and stopped into Stephanie's office to tell her to keep the doors locked until 9am. Stephen left and continued on with his day. Melissa and Amy were hungry, so they asked Stephanie for change to go buy snacks from the vending machine before their patrons started arriving. But they never made it to the machines because they were stopped by two men standing in an open doorway of the bowling alley holding guns at their sides. One of the intruders took both girls into the manager's office. Stephanie was in there working and was surprised and alarmed when the two men and the two girls entered. The second man was off to find the cook, Ida. When he returned holding a terrified Ida at gunpoint with a 22 caliber pistol aimed at her head, the group was told to get on the ground. Very soon after that, Steve Terran came to start his shift. Steve Terran was the mechanic of the bowling alley. He was having some misfortune finding a babysitter that morning, so he brought his daughters, Valerie and stepdaughter Paula, to the alley with him while he worked. Steve and his daughters were forced into the office where Stephanie and her daughter Melissa and Melissa's friend Amy were being held, clinging to the floor. Steve tried to fight the men, but was quickly overpowered. The gunmen seemed to be looking for money, and when they found the bowling alley safe, they took every bit of cash that was inside. And it wound up being somewhere between like $4,000 and $5,000, which to me sounds like a lot of money to keep on hand at a bowling alley. Well, you gotta think they probably still had the money left over from the night before if they didn't drop it in a night deposit box. Eh, it could be. But I don't run a bowling alley. I don't know how often, how much petty cash bowling alleys would keep on hand in the first place. Well, this wasn't a safe, so it wouldn't be like petty cash. No. But, yeah. I, fuck, if you carried, 
if you had four to five thousand dollars sitting in petty cash, no, oh. that's a lot. <laughs> well, I'm saying petty cash because I don't know a better term to use at the oh, moment. I gotcha. That simply could have been the end of it, but of course it wasn't. They could have literally walked away, left the hostages alone, and hopped their happy asses across the border to Mexico. But you know they didn't. Other, you know, if they did, I wouldn't be talking about this case. Right, because you know that'd be too convenient. Just, just let people be. Well, well I mean, hell yeah, just let people be all together and not fucking rob them. But mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Yep. So these two assholes would wind up shooting all of them in the head. Oh, yeah, I guess can't leave witnesses. Yeah, I guess. The three adults, Stephanie, Steve, and Ida, as well as the four children, Melissa, Amy, Valerie, and Paula, all shot in the head. For no known reason, actually, they started a fire in the manager's office. Probably trying to cover like, it up. everything that they could find that would go up in flames, they put on the desk and put up in flames. Yeah. They started it with um, all the paperwork that was sitting on Stephanie's desk. Whether the case was that they um, burned the building down to destroy evidence that they might have left behind, or just like a last fuck you to the people that they terrorized. Right. Don't know. 12-year-old Melissa was shot five times and was thankfully alive. She was able to fight through the thickening smoke of the fire, find the phone, and call 911. Which she had learned how to do at school literally a week before this happened. A week. While the firefighters extinguished the fire, paramedics looked after the injured. There were so many people on scene, and evidence was being ruined from the water, you know, coming from the hoses. Um, If they weren't ruined, they were extremely compromised. However, they were able to get a few footprints and shell casings. Out of everything they did in there, that's all they could find. In total, four people died that day. 13-year-old Amy Hauser, 6-year-old Paula Holguin, and 26-year-old Steve Tarrant. Two-year-old Valerie was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital that the paramedics had rushed her to. Stephanie, Melissa, and Ida were the only survivors. Stephanie spent 11 days in the hospital recovering. Ida spent six months in the hospital. So she was obviously harmed a lot more than Stephanie was. One of the survivors recalled the suspects having all seven victims lay face down on the floor, and that's when they were all shot in the head, execution style. Police set off to canvas the neighborhood to see if they could scrounge up any witnesses of the shootings or to find the killers and get them into custody. A witness told the police that he had heard gunshots from across the street, but thought nothing of it until the EMS and police started showing up at the bowling alley. Well, that must be quite frequently happening in this area. Somebody's just like, not paying attention. I mean, like I mentioned in previous episodes about people that live down the road from us that mm-hmm. we hear on Saturdays yeah. shooting off at the off on their property. It wasn't just local police that were there to search. Helicopters, planes, and multiple police departments were there and all involved. This included the Army, Border Patrol, and U.S. Customs. They were all there to look for the shooters. As they were only 45 minutes away from the Mexico border, 
police had decided to put out roadblocks in case the killers tried to leave the country. At 9 a.m., cops stopped a car with four men inside. All four men were searched, and police found over $12,000 in combined cash on them. They were hoping with that amount of cash that the two killers were in the car, so they got Stephanie's brother, Steve Senek, to come and identify them. However, none of the men inside the vehicle were the shooters. Hmm? So it just coincidentally, it was just other four other dudes with like $12,000? Yeah. Probably drug money anyhow. Heck no, not heading towards the border. Or are they going to go for a donkey show or two, maybe? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> That's in Tijuana. So, Tijuana. I'm, maybe there's other parts of Mexico that have them. You don't know. You've never been there. I do. I do not, and I have not. Anyhow. Police needed something more to go off than just them being males. So the police sat down with Steve and worked together to create sketches of the suspects. According to the Las Cruces police, the older suspect was in his 30s or like early 40s. He was around 5 foot 5 and 160 to 180 pounds. The younger suspect was in his late 20s and between like 5 foot 6 and 5 foot 8. Weighing about 90, 190 pounds. Damn, 90 pounds. That'd be fucking Skeletor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no. Steve said that both men were Hispanic. Police decided after some time that the drawings must be correct since he was no longer under duress when he saw them. Melissa, on the other hand, wasn't much help on how they looked since she was in fight or flight and easily forgot faces due to everything happening around her. She was able to tell police that the older man had a Spanish accent and the younger one sounded more American. The descriptions of the suspects were then made into composites and were then distributed to law enforcement agencies and news stations across Mexico and the United States. Very soon thereafter, police started to receive a huge influx of tips. Just the tips. So many that they wound up having to open a secondary line to keep up with the number of tips that they were getting. Sadly, with the massive amounts of tips that they were getting, only a few of them were usable. With as many leads as they followed, leading them to nowhere, the police started to look at the robbery in more thorough detail. The killers had stolen thousands of dollars from the bowling alley. Ida was able to tell investigators that they continued to rifle through belongings, um... And that in a filing cabinet, they were searching, like, hardcore after they took the money. So it seems that they were looking for something other than the money. Yeah, like, if they're trying to do, I guess you could say, smash and grab robbery, you're not going to be... Rifling through paperwork. No, you're looking for something very specific. Right. So, at least I'm thinking they were looking at something... More than just the money. But what? What? Deneau. Ron Senek, Stephanie's father and older <laughs> and owner of the bowling alley, was in Arizona and on a golfing trip. When he got the news of what happened, he came home immediately. He opened the bowling alley six days after the tragedy happened. <laughs> six days. Well, I mean... Look at what McDonald's did in San Ysidro. They tried to open it about the same amount of time after, you know, 25 people were, you know, killed or injured. I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head at this point now. Yeah. Well, you'd think, you know, your daughter and your granddaughter 
and the woman you hired to cook for your your job are laid up in a hospital with bullet wounds in their heads and you open six days later at any rate it made people look at him kind of as a suspect looking a little bit sus right now (laughs) there were rumors of drugs and organized crime and ron was the bullseye in the middle of it all Crime Stoppers had offered a reward of $12,000 and locals raised another 8000 in hopes that someone had information about the murders. Unfortunately, no new leads came their way. In March of 1990, the sketches were given an update and redistributed again to any news outlet that would take them. So, Crime Stoppers was a national thing? I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had it up there too. Yeah. You don't see the commercials for that anymore either. Uh, yeah, you do. I see them all the time, yeah. Having no new information, police started looking at tips from all over the United States, but that was a failed mission also, and no new suspects were identified. Unsolved Mysteries would feature an episode about the massacre two months after the tragedy took place. America's Most Wanted also did a story on their show in 2004. Even with the many calls and, like extreme renewed interest in this case Mm -hmm. uh the leads they got again not helpful and the police weren't any closer to solving this case or to finding the suspects in january of 1991 the bowling alley was auctioned up by the bank and sold the business was in foreclosure and ron was bankrupt he was in debt by two million dollars rumors started swirling again People claiming that Ron was the mastermind behind the horrific crime that took four lives. You know, insurance money. Mm-hmm. Um, but was he? Was he, David? Do you know? Uh, I don't know, but I bet you do. Ah. <laughs> Ron, Senek sp- <laughs> Ron Senek said he spent a lot of time with the police and trying to help them. But the police had reported quite the opposite, stating that he was hard to track down which they had to do often. Ron stated he felt like a suspect and that the police, you know, treated him as such. However, there would soon be another death nearby, and the bowling alley tragedy and this new death had one very surprising thing in common. It was Ron. Ron Senek. In March, a man by the name of James Chapman was killed at Rio Rancho Lanes in New Mexico. He had been the custodian of that bowling alley, which was once owned by Ron Senek, until it was also bankrupt a few years later. Sounds like Ron is not good bowling alley (laughs) management here. (laughs) Right. Even with the coincidence, police confirmed that the murder in Rio Rancho was not related to the Las Cruces bowling alley murders. That's what you get for thinking. You thought it was Ron. Amy. Well, either way, he still needs to go to Vincent's University for Bowling Alley Management, oh. you know, which, yes, that is an actual degree down there. Wow. Yeah. That's a little hick-ass college, ain't it? Yeah, Vincent's is not in a very big area. Like, <laughs> our two of our listeners, my brother and his roommate, Scott, that you mm-hmm. met, yeah, they can tell you, that, like, two things to do in Vincent's is go to Walmart or watch traffic go by. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. <laughs> but fun story about that place but i'll tell you later amy hausen's mother gloria wasn't really sure during the auction at the bowling alley in las cruces she held a sign that read 
Non-payment may have cost four lives. Justice? With a question mark. In an interview for the 30th anniversary of the massacre, Steve Tarrant's brother, Anthony, discussed his anger that the killers were not found. He said, in this day and age, things like this don't go unsolved. How did we not get these guys? That's a question I ask myself every day. Stephanie Senek wound up passing away in 1999 because of issues with the injury she sustained in the Bowling Alley Massacre. Her daughter, Melissa, survived and is now 36. No one is sure what happened to Ida, but if she is alive today, she would be like in her 60s. -hmm. 30 years after the murders, the Bowling Alley killings are still a mystery. Las Cruces Police Chief Jamie Montoya said... It remains our intention to solve this case for the sake of the victims, their families and friends, and all the residents of Las Cruces who continue to mourn the senseless tragedy that shook our city on that cold February morning a quarter century ago. Audrey Martinez Terran, Stephen Terran's wife and the mother of Paula and Valerie, said in 2021 that if she could talk to the men who took her family from her, she said that she would let them know not only what they did to her, but to the entire community. Audrey and her extended family continue to hold vigils for the three family members that were gone too soon. As of now, the new reward total is $25,000 for any tips that lead to the capture of the subs... subs that lead to the capture of the suspects. And that's it. It's still, it's not solved. I read articles from like a year ago mm-hmm. or... One from this year, even, that they're still trying to find the people that did it. Well, hopefully they finally do get some kind of justice at some point. Hopefully. Before the rest of the family passes on. Yeah. But, like, the audio clip of the 911 call that you put in there, Mm -hmm. like, she called with that bullet in her brain. Yeah. Insane. Insane. Yeah. But yeah, that that's that's it. The ongoing. There's really no way to end it because it's not right. it's not right. over. I get that. So, with that all out of the way, let's hear your fucked up disco history. My weird disco history. Yeah, yeah. Are you ready? Yep, I'm ready. All right. Okay. So, with about little over a month left until opening day for baseball season. Um, and as cold as it's been, I decided I wanted to do a story that'll give you... So I wanted to give everybody some warm thoughts because that's how I decided to pick a story that's related to baseball. So have you ever heard of Disco Destruction Night? Nope. This is, like I said earlier, this is probably about as crazy as the World War II ban on sliced bread for the most part. Okay. So let's get started here. The year 1979, ESPN would launch on cable television for the first time ever. Sony would introduce the Walkman for $200, which comes out to be $865.90 today. $865 for a Walkman? That's what our favorite inflation calculator came out to be. Yeah, that's what it inflated it out to be. Even $269 (laughs) is a lot for today. Jeez. Gasoline would reach a high price of 90 cents a gallon during the gas shortages of the 1970s, and the Daytona 500 would be televised for the first time from beginning to end in this year. 
Disco would also reach its peak in 1979, and Rodney Alcala's dating game killer. Uh-huh. crimes would come to an end. On a July night in Chicago, a disc jockey would try to bring the hottest genre of the time to an end. <laughs> You're like, hmm. yeah. Oh, this is interesting. Disco is a very early version of music similar to what we would know as EDM music now. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I see how they can correlate. Okay. That disco has its roots originally in soul, funk, and pop music. Disco would first start to emerge in the 1960s as part of the, the counterculture movement of the time in Europe. Disco would become more popular by the time it would reach the United States in the 1970s as the hippie movement of the counterculture was starting to fade away with political issues of the early 1970s in the form of the race riots across the country. Across the country, Vietnam War, the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and John F. Kennedy, and the Watergate scandal as well. Many people found an escape in disco music and disco dancing. Also cocaine. And I'm sure the cocaine probably <laughs> helped with that too. <laughs> the birth of disco is claimed mostly to private dance parties held at the home of a DJ named David Moscow Mancuso. Mancuso's home that would become known as The Loft. Okay. One of his first significant disco parties would actually be held on Valentine's Day in 1970, giving the birth of disco to the United States. It wouldn't be until the release of the movie Saturday Night Fever starring John Travolta and Karen Lynn Gourmet, disco would become more mainstream. Okay. Between 1978 and 1979, disco dominated the music world. Music critics often would express they feared that the rise of disco would kill off rock and roll. Rock musicians like the Rolling Stones, Rod Stewart, Kiss, and even the hippie rockers, the Grateful Dead, would release disco singles. The Grateful Dead released a, mm-hmm. a disco single? Yep, so I do. I figured you'd be curious to know what these songs are. Yeah. So the Rolling Stones would release a disco single of Miss You. Okay. Uh, Rod Stewart's one of his biggest songs, Do You Think I'm Sexy. That was supposed to be disco? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Never would have thought that, but... Uh, Kiss, I Was Made For Loving You, that's like... I have to listen to that song. Sorry. I have to listen to that song at work almost every fucking day. Yeah. I cannot tell you how much I despise that song. Continue. Well, that's Kiss's big disco single. Yeah, it's horrible. And the Grateful Dead, their disco single would be Shakedown Straight. I thought you were going to say Shades of Grey. I'm like, no. <laughs> or was that the name of that song? I don't know. I never really listened to Grateful Dead. I wasn't into the hippie rock shit. Even the 21st Grammy Awards wasn't even at safe from disco in 1979. Saturday Night Fever would actually win album of the year. Best new artists would go to A Taste of Honey, their big song Boogie Oogie Oogie. How'd it go? Boogie Oogie Oogie. <laughs> We're moving on. Fuck off. <laughs> now, we're not talking about Oogie Boogie in the basement of Halloween Town here. Anyhow, <laughs> Barry Manilow would also win Best Pop Male Vocal with Coco, ba- Coco Cabana. I love that song. And the Bee Gees would win Best Pop Performance with Groups Vocals for Staying Alive, obviously. Of course. And Donna Summer, also known as the Queen of Disco, would win Best R&B Performance for Let's Dance. Even the 13th of the top 16 singles of early 1979 were disco hits. I tried to find this list, but I couldn't find it. Uh. As more radio stations were starting to convert from rock and roll to disco, 
WKTU in New York City was a low-rated rock station in 1978 until it switched over to disco and became the most popular disco station nationwide. Did they, I mean, did they just, just straight disco? They completely got rid of the rock mm-hmm. music? Wow. Yeah, that's what a lot of these radio stations do. They're, they fit a particular genre and they switch over, basically. Oh. And just like WKTU of New York City, a rock station of WDAI of Chicago would make the same switch on Christmas Eve of 1978 from rock to disco as well. Morning show DJ Steve Dahl would find out that he's being fired the same night because of them switching from rock to disco. They fired him for that? Mm-hmm, because he wow. was a rock DJ, so. People would call Steve Dahl a shock jock like Howard Stern, for example, but he never considered himself one. Steve Dahl would actually wouldn't take his firing lightly after he was rehired at a rival radio station, WLUP, The Loop, in Chicago. Okay. During his time at The Loop, Dahl would destroy records on the air by breaking them or dragging the needle across these <laughs> albums and then play an explosion sound effect afterwards. Wow. And then reading this, you know, I'm just like, ah, don't do that! <laughs> he would also make create a mock organization of anti-disco listeners named the insane coho lips coho lips insane coho lips is the name of his anti-disco army okay steve came up with this name by taking the name of a chicago street gang known as the insane unknowns and seeing the coho fishing fleet in the burn the burnham harbor in chicago on his way to the studio at what in the early morning hours okay so that's what the name i don't know where the lips part came in i tried to find an answer couldn't find one. Steve Dahl would actually also promote a number of anti-disco events as well. When a disco tech was opening in Linwood, Illinois in June of 1979, Steve showed up with thousands of his listeners and the police were called. Later that month, when a teen disco was also being opening that was also opening in the suburbs of Chicago, once again, he urged his quote-unquote army to show up and throw marshmallows at the promo van for WDAI. <laughs> which he would mock on the air as Disco Die. The Coho Army would get this van actually cornered in a parking lot, and the whole situation did end without violence, thankfully. Well, I mean, to be fair, their weapon of choice was fucking marshmallows, so how hardcore was this going to (laughs) be? I mean, the driver's flight or flight mode could have kicked in, panic, bringing these people down. I mean, that's a possibility that could have happened, or some people could have taken it way too serious and... Injured them for no apparent reason. On July 1st, hundreds of the co-hosts couldn't enter a disco promo event and fights would actually break out at the end of an event in almost a riot in Hanover Park, Illinois. But probably one of the more radical shows of his hate for disco would be when Van McCoy died suddenly in July of 1979. He would mark this occasion for lack of a better term, by destroying the copy of The Hustle, which was McCoy's breakout hit, on the air. Wow. Dahl was very vocal on how much he hated disco, even as going as far as spoofing Rod Stewart's Do You Think I'm Sexy into a spoof named Do You Think I'm Disco? (laughs) With his band named Teenage Radiation as a 45 RPM single. Which, basically, the lyrics of the song was this, like, he's mocking Saturday Night Live for the most part. He takes Uh Tony from the movie and he makes... Does like a complete opposite. Like Tony finally gives up on disco, melts down all of his gold jewelry into a Led Zeppelin belt buckle by the end of the song. (laughs) 
Uh, when ever Steve Dahl was ever asked why he hated disco so much, he would reply with, I can't find a white three-piece suit that fits him off the rack, and I'm allergic to gold jewelry, and he hates the taste of pina coladas, and he can't dance. Wow. Those were, was he being, like, legit with those reasons? I don't know, because some of the videos I watched, like, pre-game uh, interview, and then on a Tonight Show that he was on, he said this more than once. A lot of different things I watched. He said this, so this was like his most common answer why he hated disco so much. Wow. But the 1979 White Sox were having a slump in home game attendance, averaging about 16,000 fans per game. Mike Veek, the son of the owner of the Chicago White Sox, would hear of Dahl's hate for disco, was planning an anti-disco event at a local mall by blowing up disco records, and would invite Dahl to Kometsky Park, which is where the White Sox play. Uh Uh-huh. To hold this anti-disco event there. Did he hate disco too? Mm, he was planning an anti-disco event and then he heard about Steve Dahl's. Ah, uh, okay. When they was planning so he wanted to give him a much bigger backdrop for it. Steve was unsure about this and he didn't think his co-host would provide a big enough backdrop for blowing up the records. And it would be the end of his career if this failed. But the White Sox did agree to sell discounted tickets for the anti-disco night to bring in more fans. This would become a White Sox promotion known as Disco Demolition Night. Huh. Because previously they did hold disco nights Uh. at Comiskey Park as well. Veek's promotion would, would be if you would bring a disco record for them to blow up, you would get a ticket to the game for about 98 cents. Which... Today, that would be $4.29, and for a reference to what the cheap seats are at Kamensky Park for the opening day during against the Giants, this year is about $30. Dang. Inflation. Yeah. So that they decided on the $0.98 cents because the loop's radio frequency is 97.9, so they just made it $0.98. Yeah. Cents. Disco Demolition Night would finally be held on July 12th, 1979, during a doubleheader against the Detroit Tigers. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Beak and the Loop had hoped that this promotion would boost the game attendance to about 20,000. Beak would also hire enough security for a 35,000 capacity crowd just in case. When Mike Veek met with his hired security and informed them before the doubleheader started, and he was expecting around 35,000 people, and they just kind of left him off just because they know, like, the White Sox doesn't really yeah. bring a whole lot of people in. Did they wind up getting that many people? Well, you're about to find out. Okay. With this steep discount and the promotions held for Desco Demolition Night at Comiskey Park, they would actually sell at 44,500 capacity. Damn. It's well, it was estimated by Bill Veek that there were up to 20,000 more people outside the stadium trying to get in. You <laughs> seem a little shocked by that. Well, yeah, they were thinking like 35,000 people. Huh, that'll yeah. never happen. And then they get 44,000 people inside yeah. and how many outside waiting to get in? 20,000. So like 65,000 people yeah. almost. Uh, the Chicago police actually had to close the ramps from the Dan Ryan Expressway off near the stadium because there were so many people, so many cars, the... People were just leaving their cars just parked in the street, for the most part, on the Dan Ryan Expressway. Wow. Uh, The owner of the Sox at the time, he became so concerned about this event becoming a disaster. He was actually at a hospital getting some medical tests get done. And when he could see that how many people were carrying these disco suck signs through the streets, (laughs) which would later 
on me hung from the upper decks of the ballpark during these games. He mm-hmm. left and went down there to the ballpark. The first game was scheduled to start at 6 p.m. Central Time and leading up to the game, ballpark staff are collecting all these records that are being brought in and they fill this box, which is approximately four feet long, six feet wide, and five feet high. I do have a picture of Steve with the box that you'll see later when we make our post. The game did start off at 6 p.m. with no problems until Mike... Mike Veek had gotten word that people were trying to enter the ballpark without a ticket and people were jumping the turnstiles that you normally come through so they can keep count of how many people are in there, hopping fences, squeezing through spaces and gates and through porthole windows, big cutouts on the concrete yeah. sides, and any other possible way that they could find a way into Kometsky Park. Mike would actually send his security force that he hired to go stop these people from entering, entering and left the field unguarded. Oh. <laughs> Oh yeah, you're like you're you're thinking, oh shit, this is ramping up pretty bad. <laughs> With the field left unguarded, the anti-disco fans would start tossing LPs and 45 singles down on the field like frisbees during the very first game. Now, if you never have held or seen a vinyl record, they are a perfect circle and they are very light. They are very thin and they would fly very far. And if you probably would get in their way, they probably would fucking cut you. Oh, yeah. Especially the the like real thin ones. Mm-hmm. Oof. Oof. I can only imagine what 180 gram would do. Fucking knock your dome. Yeah. Probably off. from toss from the upper deck, maybe. But <laughs> so Rusty Stubb, a designated hitter for the Detroit for the Detroit Tigers, would recall that these records would slice through the air and stick straight into the ground, and then he would urge his teammates to wear batting helmets while playing their positions. Like, it yeah. didn't matter what position you're wearing. Wear a fucking helmet out there for the most part. Rusty Torres of the White Sox, he was played, uh, He was an outfielder for them. Also would recall an LP whizzing by his head and just missing him by a couple inches. And he would also say that the crowd was yelling at him, Hey, Rusty, Disco sucks. We're going to kill Disco tonight, Rusty. And his thoughts were on that. It's like, dude, I was just at the discotheque last night. What are you talking about killing disco? Right. Game officials would actually have to stop the game several times due to these records and bottles being thrown and even firecrackers because, you know, the 4th of July just happened. White Sox pitcher Ed Farmer would remember a Beach Boys record coming sailing in front of his face. And all he could remember off the label was fun, fun, fun. So I'm thinking people were probably just brought a record that were just that's to get it. definitely mean, not disco. Well, they probably just, um, I tried to find some like radio promos and things like that to see what they said. Mm-hmm. So people were probably just like, they're probably not going to check it. You know, my guess is people probably just stole LPs or just brought one they didn't care for or scratched yeah. or warped, you know, just to get into a White Sox game super cheap. Right. Legendary broadcaster Harry Carey, which was the announcer for the White Sox until 1981, until he went over to the Chicago Cubs, would say that that they should have had a pot vendor at the ballpark since the smell of marijuana permeated the press box. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> the, the fans that weren't able to get inside the ballpark were already kicking things off by burning albums and bonfires outside of the ballpark as well. The first game would end at 8.16 p.m. with the Tigers winning 4-1. to one. The Tigers one? Yep. Apparently the 1979 Tigers were actually good. <laughs> <laughs> God knows the uh, 
What year? What year did you say? This is 1979. Okay, so the 1980 to present fucking Tigers suck. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the disc demolitions occur on the Detroit Tigers. Maybe. I don't know. But anyhow, and at 8:40 before the game two would start, the giant box of the record, the giant box of records would be rolled out onto center field, and Steve Dahl would arrive in a jeep and wearing an Army Class A jacket, uniform, and an Army helmet, and would address the crowd. I see. Okay. Well, listen, we took all the disco records that you brought tonight. We got them in a giant box. And we're going to blow them up real good. Because he didn't expect this many people to show up. So this was the best he could come up off the top of his head. And after a count of three from Steve Dahl himself and shouting boom, a small battery of fireworks would go off. And then the box exploded, sending vinyl into the air and the crowd cheering. And the ballpark organist would briefly play the instrumentals of Do You Think I'm Sexy by Rod Stewart. <laughs> like shortly after this all happened as the crowd was like screaming. Steve would break into the Coho Army's anthem, which was the spoof of the Rod Stewart song that I had just mentioned. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and then Steve Dahl would eventually lead the field in a victory lap in the Jeep that he arrived in. Ken Kravak from the White Sox would take the mound and start warming up for game two as fans rushed the unprotected field. Oh. Some of the fans felt that it was getting out of hand and would try to leave, but had difficulty doing so as security at the same time is trying to keep people out since they had locked all but one gate. They estimate that somewhere between five to 7,000 fans rushed onto the field and then Karvik would rush back into the White Sox dugout, and the White Sox would barricade themselves in their clubhouse. Fans would steal benches from the picnic area and build a bonfire on center field and then continue burning records and more than likely anything else that they could find. Other fans that rushed the field would destroy the batting cages that they had set up in the bullpen as well, dig up and steal home plate, and tear up the field in the chaos. Jimmy Pearsall back in the ballpark, and I'm sure glad, and I hope they don't let you people see what's going on here at Comiskey Park. One of the saddest sights I've ever seen in a ballpark in my life. This garbage of demolishing a record has turned into a fiasco. Some fans would actually hold their own games by running the bases and sliding into home plate, and another random fan played an umpire and would call them out or safe, depending on their slide. One of the fans that took part in the running of these bases was actor Michael Clark Duncan, okay. which is better known as John Coffey in the Green Mile and Bear in Armageddon. He would end up going home with a bat from one of the dugouts. And one of the, this was just a fun little thing that, spicy little thing that I found uh-huh. that it can only showed up in one video, but I wanted to edit it anyhow. A couple was spotted taking advantage of the situation and made it third base, as you could say. <laughs> Now, apparently there was this young couple going to third base, behind third base, basically. Wow. Paul Sullivan, a fan that attended Disco Demolition, would gather with his buddies at the Detroit Tigers dugout, passing a bottle of Jack Daniels between them. And he recalls that one of the Detroit Tiger coaches told them, give him the bottle, which they did, and tells them to get out of their dugout. I can only imagine being from Detroit just how super calm he was about this shit with the pure chaos going on on the field in the fucking background for the most part. Well, why why do you take their liquor? I don't know. 
So he was going to drink it. That's he said, probably, this, game, <laughs> this game is fucking done. That's probably what it was. He wanted it for himself. <laughs> Bill Vick and Harry Carey would both make attempts to get the crowd back in their seats over a microphone. And they would put it up on the big Jumbotron. Mm-hmm. I think they called it the Soxitron or something like that. And please you know, return to your seats. And Bill Vick and Harry Carey, they would try also singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game in hopes that this would work. And unfortunately, the crowd would just sing along with them and stay on the field. <laughs> After approximately 40 minutes of this, the Chicago Police Department finally are able to take the field and get it cleared within five minutes in riot gear and mounted police. But the damage was already done, and due to a curfew of 1 a.m. in Chicago near the White Sox field, they would have to forfeit the second game against the Detroit Tigers. Wow. Disco demolition would end with 39 arrests and minor injuries. And for about three weeks after this, Bill Vick, the owner of the White Sox, would receive approximately 5,000 letters stating they would never come back or watch another White Sox game ever again. Because he allowed that to happen there? Yeah, like this was his son's idea, which was the promotions manager for the White Sox at the time. But they also never expected this to happen either. You know, they figured they'd just blow this box up and be done with it right. and roll. Especially on the scale that it all, wound up being. Yeah, like, like the grounds crew was even trying to make the field playable and the Detroit Tigers manager came up and said, this, we can't play on this field, you know. Like, there's like, in the videos I watched, it showed the grounds crew trying to repaint the lines and, you know, in between the bases and whatnot. And then there's this giant crater in the center of field from this whole full <laughs> box of records. that just got fucking blown up too. And then all the other damage, all the fans created, like in the videos, you can see the fans climbing down the, the foul line posts from the upper deck down. And it's just, wow. Steve Dahl never actually expected this to happen the way that it did. Or get so far out of hand. And he actually is a really big fan of baseball and respects the game. And he never intended to defile the game itself with this. He didn't like, you know, Mike Vick probably didn't expect this to happen either. So Uh, Steve Dahl would actually go on to say later on in his life that the BG said he successfully killed Disco that night. And that's good enough for him. The BG said that? Yep. Wow. Or at least he claims that it did. Oh, I don't think he I don't think that happened. Maybe they did. Who knows? But, yeah, that's Disco Demolition Night of the Chicago White Sox of 1979. Disco Inferno! <laughs> right? So. That's, that was, that was, that was a home run, babe. Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah. That's a Grand Slam story this week. Eh, just home run. I don't know what a Grand Slam is. I don't either. I just know it's a baseball thing. <laughs> That was pretty good. Yeah. That's crazy. You gotta love the shock jocks, though. Yeah. Like, I love me some Howard Stern. Well, well, see, the thing is, Steve Dahl actually does not like, you know, being called a shock jock. He never considered himself one. He said that he would do things that shocked people, but he would never call himself a shock jock. So everybody else can call him one, and he just doesn't have to call himself yeah. that. Right. But. That was pretty good. Yeah, like I was going to do the ten cent beer night from the Cleveland Indians, and then this happened to pop up, and I read it in this. I'm like, wow, this is like more biz- like bonkers than ten cent beer night. Which who knows, I might still do that later on. 
So, I mean, I went through this and I'm more curious about... Ten-cent beer? Well, not ten-cent beer. I mean, who isn't other than you? But I'm talking about, I guess, not a riot, but unruly fans for shit like this. Mm. You know, who knows? I might have to look into more, see what there's out there. Yeah. But yeah, that's it on that. That was good. I figured you would like this one. Yeah. Even though I don't like sports and... My home team, the Detroit Lions, Detroit Tigers. Yeah, Detroit everything. Yeah, well, no. Minus, the Red Wings yeah. are really good. I was about to say minus the Detroit Red Wings, it seems like. But baseball, football, like, is this suck. The Pistons even still a team? Yeah. You just never hear about them, so. Because they're not great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, way to go. So, yeah. Now I have much more else to say about that. Me neither. Other than, I don't know what I was going to say now. So that reverts back to you have nothing else to say. I, I mean, I, it was cringe hear, like hearing them talk about how they were handling these records. Like in one of the videos also that Steve Dahl did, he would actually smash records over his head. And then he would also do it on the same Tonight show that he did an appearance with on Meatloaf and would smash records. Is he still alive? Steve Dull, yes. Yeah. He actually has a podcast. Um, and of course, the one episode that I really wanted to listen to for this story was behind a fucking paywall, and I was not paying $11 for it. Well, of course. <laughs> I wonder what he would think if he would treat vinyl records the same way he did back then, today, with today's prices and the vinyl shortage. Right. And I would, I would like well, to know if he would do that again. He probably wouldn't now. And um, one of the other videos I did watch to see if he said anything else, like a 25, 30 year afterwards, like mm-hmm. when the original Kaminsky Park was getting ready to close, he was invited back and he was signing baseballs, which he found kind of odd. Oh, God. It's like he basically boiled it down to being like, that's all water under the bridge. I'm welcome back to be here with the White Sox and everything, you know, as long as I don't try to blow up any records. <laughs> Good Lord. You know. I mean, probably he didn't want to talk about it at first after it happened, but now that he's, you know, 60s, 70s now, probably because he was 24 when this happened. Oh, okay. I don't know why I was thinking he was older, like our age. No. God, that sucked. So, <laughs> so his attitude's probably mellowed out a little bit. Maybe. Yeah, like last I knew when looking at all this, he's actually now on an AM radio station, probably talk radio now at some point. Oh. But, but anyway, that's it. So I think it's time we close the Emporium up for today, Sarah. What do you think? I agree. So until next time. Remember to creep it real. Please check out our website at macabreemporiumpodcast.com. Join our Facebook group by searching Macabre Emporium. Like and subscribe on YouTube at Macabre Emporium Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Macabre Emporium. And if you have any stories of the paranormal, your local true crime, or weird history that you would want us to look into and possibly do an episode on, email us at macabreemporiumpod at gmail.com. Remember to follow, rate, like, review, and share whenever and wherever you can and help us grow our little baby podcast.